Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Vanishing Glass. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, We want to say thank you so much to our listeners. It's been really great to get your feedback and to hear mostly positive things about the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, and we'd like to remind you once again, uh, if you have any questions or comments or things you'd like us to talk about, please email those to harrypodcast7 at gmail.com. Yeah, we really do read those and we appreciate them. So thanks so much. So let's get right into the synopsis of the chapter. Uh, This was chapter two of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, And so we begin with a flash forward 10 years after we left off with baby Harry on the doorstep of number four Privet Drive. Harry now lives in the cupboard under the stairs uh, and has a horrible life with his aunt's family, the Dursleys, uh, who neglect and abuse him. And on the day the chapter takes place, it's Dudley's birthday, and he's being a brat as usual. Uh, The normal babysitter, Mrs. Fig, uh, falls through for Harry, and so Harry has to come with the family to the zoo, um, where he has a lot of fun, but then eventually uh, he talks to a snake in one of the reptile houses, um, accidentally vanishes the glass, and the snake escapes, everyone freaks out, and Harry is punished at the end of the chapter. Let's get into our title segment. The title of this chapter is The Vanishing Glass. David, what do you think the literal interpretation of this title is? All right, well, the literal interpretation is uh, it's the description of an event that takes place in the chapter where um, Harry accidentally uses magic to vanish the glass in the snake enclosure, um, which was keeping the boa constrictor imprisoned there. Uh, and just as a demonstration of what vanishing means in magic, vanishing in this universe means to cause something to lose its material hold on the universe. So when you vanish something, it goes into non-being, which, as Professor McGonagall will later tell us, is everything. So when you vanish the glass, it disappears from reality, and the atoms just sort of spread out and become part of everything. And I just want to point out that vanishing is actually very difficult magic. Um, so the fact that Harry was able to do this by accident uh, is, is very impressive. Yes, and we'll talk more about how the magic of this might work later on in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So glass, um, as a symbol, is something that you can see through and something that you can pretend is separating you from the world, but it's really fake. They're, you can really see through it. So um, I think of this symbol of the, now the glass being vanished is that this world of magic is starting to become real for Harry. So something is going on that he can't really explain away anymore. And we'll talk about some instances of magic that Harry has experienced in the past. Um, But I think that now this is becoming even closer to his reality for both Harry and the Dursleys. So we're talking about here, just to clarify, um, when you talk about the glass and the the magical world, you're talking about a parallel between the snake and the glass barrier between it and the rest of the world and Harry and some sort of barrier between him and the wizarding world? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, that is what I was thinking. I think you can think of it in a few ways. One is removing the stake from it and just thinking about Harry and the glass between him and something. So him and his wizarding world. Oh, I see. Okay. But then you can also think of it as um, glass for the snake is the barrier keeping it imprisoned from its homeland of Brazil. And so the snake is imprisoned and um, he's also having his glass vanished. Right. And so in that way, Harry and the snake are are sort of similar, right? Because they're both 
taken out of their homeland, I guess you could say, where Harry was taken out of the wizarding world and the snake was taken out of, uh, well, I guess in this case, Brazil, uh, and that there's sort of a non-tangible barrier between them and that thing. Harry's is a lot less obvious, but it's sort of like the overprotective slash abuse that the Dursleys lay on him and then growing up in the muggle world, would you say? Yeah, I think so. And I think just in general, um, I think of this glass as a symbol for um, something that we all kind of use to pretend that we are sheltered from the world, but really you can see through it and you know that the world is out there. And so that's kind of how I think of Harry in the magical world right now. And this, this symbol of the glass vanishing is just really showing how these worlds are melding. Another thing I just thought was interesting was that um, vanishing in general, you mentioned how McGonagall talks about it later and how that's something that they learn to do Mm -hmm. to objects. I also think about things like um, apparition as well as the invisibility cloak, which becomes a huge symbol for Harry later on. And he literally vanishes himself in a way um, all the time later on. And that becomes one of his greatest strengths and skills and so this is sort of the first instance of him doing that yeah no that's cool i didn't i didn't actually see that parallel that's that's a good one um well let's get right into the plot of this chapter um so i'd like to start by talking about the characters that we've met in this chapter um we first meet dudley dursley and harry potter um they were mentioned last chapter but as babies so we get to meet them as sort of fully formed humans at this point now um we'll talk more about some similarities and differences between them later. Um, but the only completely new character that we meet is uh, Piers Polkis, who is sort of Dudley's rat-like friend uh, who just sort of follows him around. Um, and I just think he has a great name. He does have a great name, And yeah. that's a, just a demonstration of J.K. Rowling's naming and how good she is at naming thing, villains. And he's just, yeah. that's such a villain name. So I It is, it, it is. Uh, a lot of people have compared J.K. Rowling's name choice to Charles Dickens. Um, where if you read a Dickens book, uh, often his characters have names that sort of uh, directly reflect uh, some major character trait about them. We'll see this later with, like, Remus Lupin. Right. Like, both of his names, his first and last names, are referenced to wolves. Um, Peter Pettigrew, I mean, the, like, petty, right? It means, like, small. There's there's tons of this stuff. Sirius Black, obviously, uh, dog, black dog. That's another big mm-hmm. one. Um, but, but she sort of names characters as, uh, like very obvious character traits. Um, and I think that's sort of clever, but also is, is fun for the reader because you, you get to meet these characters and think, okay, what can I learn about them just from their name alone? Um, which is fun. Um, but back to this chapter specifically, um, what we see about Harry is that his life really sucks. Uh, I mean, the Dursleys abuse and neglect him. Um, he's constantly getting put down or at best ignored. Um, and usually belittled and punished for even the slightest of missteps. Um, and it, we have to remember that he's only 11 years old. And it's easy to forget this because, you know, now he's sort of our narrator in a third-person omniscient sort of way. Um, and the abuse obviously has, like, aged him and made him slightly more mature for his age. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, he's still a child and he's still just 11. And when we think about all of the things that he's going to experience in this book and, and later, um, that's a really important thing to keep in mind is how young he is. I mean, imagine when you were 11, experiencing all of this stuff would have been just out of, out of this world. And it right. really is it's for him, crazy. too. It's crazy. I mean, you're really a young kid when you're 11. And I, 
I, when I was reading this chapter again, I realized that I really don't think of Harry as ever being younger than like 14-ish. I yeah. don't know. I just don't think of him as being that young because of the reasons we said. So yeah, yeah it's pretty interesting. I mean, the, him sort of being a third person narrator it puts you in his head. So right. like whenever I read the books, I sort of just like put myself in it and I'm like, okay, I, he's my age, whatever my age happened to be when I was reading it. And so now when I like go back and read it, I have to be like, no, he's less than half my age now. Right. So he's he's very young and, and not to harp on it too much, but it's it's an important perspective. Yeah, I agree. So another thing with the plot that we see in this chapter is really more characterization of the Dursleys. So we see that the Dursleys really hate two major things. They hate questions and mm-hmm. they hate things behaving as they shouldn't. Um, this is really exemplified in the line where Vernon says um, motorcycles don't fly to Harry when Harry talks about his dream where he heard saw a flying motorcycle. No, he was on the motorcycle. Oh, where he was on the motorcycle. And so this was obviously in reference to what we learned in the last chapter, which is that Harry arrived on a flying motorcycle with Hagrid to Privet Drive. But obviously Harry doesn't know that and Vernon doesn't even know that, but he is terrified by this. And I really thought a lot about this and the power that um the power sort of differential that there is Mm -hmm. between the Dursleys and Harry because Harry actually has all the power um when you think about it because they're so terrified of him and he can use magic but he doesn't even know it at this point so he's just this sort of untapped uh, like untapped power and um but really he doesn't have any power in his own reality because he Mm -hmm doesn't have any agency in his um, right in his day-to-day life yeah, i feel like i feel like vernon especially but but all of the Dursleys are really afraid of like the idea of harry i don't think they're afraid of him as like a child but i think they're like this is probably a young wizard and we have some sort of vague conception of what that means and we know that it like means someone that has a lot of power right exactly and so we're afraid of that and you see that but you see how great the fear is especially in that line and just in general, all, all the ways that they're acting are out of fear, and I just think that's mm-hmm. really interesting in general. Um, more about Harry's magic that we mentioned before and this idea of vanishing um, and how he did this by accident. He didn't mean mm-hmm. to vanish the glass. Um, in addition to that instance that we see in this chapter, we get reference from Harry's own head of things he's remembering that have been similar to this weird things that have happened to him in the past. Yeah. I mean, he describes them as sort of like unexplainable accidents or coincidences, but right. now looking back, we know that they were actually magic uses. Right. So, um, some of these instances that we hear about are that his hair grows back overnight after he has a bad haircut. His sweater shrinks down to nothing when Petunia is trying to put an ugly sweater on his head. Um, he is running from the, Dudley's bullies and he flies onto the school's roof somehow which he doesn't realize how that happens yeah he thought he was trying to jump behind some trash cans and then he ended up on the roof right and um this whole idea of these instances in the past as well as the glass vanishing now um really reminded me of an idea that actually comes from the movie fantastic beasts and where to find them um which Again, we don't consider necessarily canon, but this is my favorite part of the movie, which was the idea of the obscurial. So mm-hmm. um, maybe um, it, not everyone has seen the movie, but in the movie, um, this obscurial is an idea of 
um, a child wizard whose magic has been repressed. Um, sometimes they their magic comes out in this thing that looks sort of like a dark swirling cloud in the movies, but what it really is is their magic being uncontrolled and usually getting unleashed into the world and doing some type of destruction. Yeah. I know that this isn't exactly what's happening with Harry, but I do think of these instances um, where he does magic by accident and where all children sort of do magic by accident. It often comes out in these emotional times. Um, and the Obscurial is sort of a extreme version of that where these children are so repressed with their magic and so in pain and often abused themselves that they basically turn into these um, Obscurials at different times when... Yeah. Um, they really need it. So I just liked, really like that idea in general. And I think about how that can relate to these early accidental magics. Yeah, I mean, psychologically, it reminds me of the difference between someone um, who can sort of let their emotions out in a healthy way and someone who turns their emotions inward and bottles them up, you know? And, and in this analogy, you know, the healthier, uh, emotionally healthy person would to sort of uh, have magic happen sort of like Harry does when he's in a really stressful situation, the magic happens and he somehow gets out of it. Um, but an obscurial would be like someone bottling that pain and suffering up until it just bursts out in like a waterfall and it just destroys anything that is in its path. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That is, um, I didn't think about it in that way, but I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and so I, let's get to the, maybe the, the central point of this chapter, which is the, um, confrontation between Harry and the boa constrictor in the zoo. So Harry and the boa constrictor, I know we alluded to this earlier, but I think we can draw a lot of really cool parallels between Harry and the snake. Um, first of all, you know, they're imprisoned by others in a place they don't belong. Um, they both sort of grew up in that prison. Mm-hmm. The boa constrictor even said, you know, there's a sign on the on the wall of the enclosure that says um, Brazil. And Harry says, oh, you, you're from Brazil. And the snake says, no, I, I was bred in the zoo. I've never been to Brazil. Um, and, and in the same way, Harry was sort of brought up on Privet Drive, even though he doesn't belong there. Um, and, you know, the glass, I, as we talked about a lot, is sort of a, a separation between where the snake is and where it should be. Um, I think maybe the glass in Harry's case could be just sort of his physical isolation from other wizards, um, and also the fact that he's being raised by people who hate magic so much. So he's not being allowed to learn about his heritage um, in a normal way. He's he's having to just sort of have it repressed by other people. Um, when the Dursleys always tell him, you know, whatever this unnaturalness is, that things that you're doing, we're going to put a stop to it. And we also in this chapter get an early allusion to Harry's ability to speak to snakes, um, which is called parcel tongue, which, as we later are going to learn, is something that typically dark wizards can do, uh, and only dark wizards. So Harry is sort of unique in that he has this gift. I did have a couple of interesting questions that came up when I was reading this, um, one of which was the, the interaction with the snake begins with um, Harry sort of looking at the snake and noticing it. Um, and noticing how sad it looks and how it doesn't belong there and sort of seeing himself in the snake a little bit. But then without him saying or doing anything, the snake raises its head, looks him in the eye and winks like it knows that Harry's going to be able to communicate with it. So my question is, how did the snake know that? How did it sense Harry's presence or otherwise understand that, it, that he was going to be able to communicate with it? 
Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. I didn't think about that before reading this. And I wonder about future instances of parcel tongue, especially with other snakes, such as Nagini, who we know is a horcrux of Baltimore, but still they, the snakes that he interacts with do seem to have some sort of connection with him in a way that, you know, they sort of know before mm-hmm. he knows. Um, I'm not really sure you know, where I'm going with this thought, but I do think that this idea of the parcel tongue connection might be an interesting one because the connection with snakes may have an almost telepathic type of connection as opposed to just language. I'm not sure. Maybe. Like, um, Harry, Harry sort of can hear the snake's voice in his head. He can't actually hear it, like, through his ears because there's glass in the way. Right. So maybe there is some telepathy going on, but I think... Maybe, so maybe snakes in general are sort of like pseudo-magical. Uh, they can talk to parcel tongues. Yeah, that makes sense. And then they can like sense parcel tongues. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. That's pretty cool. I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, like there's no other indication that that the snake would have even noticed him. Um, so anyway, that was something that I thought about this chapter. Um, and one more point that I wanted to bring up is um, that Harry's parcel tongue ability and his using magic are both accidental and effortless and unnoticed by him until after they've happened. So not only not only is this something that he doesn't um, he doesn't feel any like power sap from him and he doesn't know that he's doing it. He doesn't know at all that he was speaking a different language. Right. To him, it sounds like words coming out, like how I'm talking right now. But in like if you know, and Pierre's Pocus sort of alludes to this later. When he says Harry was talking to it, wasn't he? Um, you know, he probably heard something like a, a bunch of hissing noises. Yeah, that's true. And and we see that later on in other books that Harry talks to snakes and he hears it. Do, do they do that in the movie? Do they show him speaking Parseltongue? No, they show him speaking English. It's yeah. not until Chamber of Secrets that we see Harry making weird hissing noises. Okay. But but I think in the books, in the in the canon of the books, it, it, it is that Harry hears English in his own head, but everyone else hears hissing noises. Right. And so that's another uh, an example of how the magic just is like a natural part of who he is and, and the parcel tongue as well. So another thing I thought was interesting was that the actual end of this chapter is a very short paragraph um, related to Dudley's bullying of Harry. And it's basically just Harry saying that he has no supports at school, um, he has no friends, and everyone everyone bullies him or ignores him because they're afraid of Dudley's gang. Mm-hmm. Um, which I just think is kind of an interesting and abrupt end to the chapter that's not very related to um, bullying, although we do hear a lot about Harry's, in general, abuse and neglect from the Dursleys. But I did think that was really interesting, and to me, it suggests that this lack of the social support that Harry has is a really important point and maybe the most important point. And I think maybe Rowling was just trying to hit this home at the end of the chapter saying, you know, all these cool things kind of happen to Harry and they're pretty upsetting sometimes. But really the main point is if he had a friend or if he had someone to support him, maybe things will be better. And we do see um, Hagrid come and really be his first main social support um, coming up in a chapter pretty soon so I just think that's and it was an interesting way of ending the chapter I was surprised because I forgot that was how it how it ended 
So uh, next we have our section on writing and writing styles. Um, so what are some things that you noticed about this chapter from a writing perspective? So the first thing I noticed at the beginning of the chapter was that Rowling does a really good introduction to this chapter showing that 10 years have passed and really painting a picture of who Harry is, what his life is like, and how bad things are, basically. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that writing at the beginning of the chapter was great. Um, I did notice that we see a lot of foreshadowing in this chapter, as we do in most chapters, um, <laughs> but lots of small things. Um, the motorcycle dream is not really foreshadowing, but it's kind of a callback and foreshadowing to what Harry will later learn about him, his past. Mm -hmm. um, we also get a reference to Mrs. Fig, the babysitter, who later becomes important. We learn that she's a squib and she gets involved. Um, and that she was sort of a spy for Dumbledore watching over Harry all these years. Right. As well. So we actually kind of see that maybe he does have this support in a way in this in this woman who has been watching out for him, even if he doesn't feel support from right. her. Well, I wouldn't say it's support exactly. I, I think it's more like in emergency situations, she's someone that would contact the right people, but it's not like he can go to her and talk about his problems, you know. Yeah, that's true. I guess just talking about support made me think of all these people that maybe are looking out for Harry in a, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, we also get a reference to Marge, who will come up later in book three. Mm -hmm. um, references to Harry having dreams of a blinding green light, which is, of course, um, his parents' death. And we also get a reference to Harry being very fast, talking about running away from the bullies. And I thought that might be some foreshadowing towards his Quidditch career and oh, yeah. him being very fast um, as a seeker. Um, there was one line that really showed Rowling's humor, I thought, which was when um, Dudley is thinking about um, his presence and he's being a brat. And Oh, is this when he's trying to do math in his head? He's trying to do math. She says, Petunia says something about, if why don't we give you two more than last year? And... Rowling writes, Dudley thought for a moment, and it looked like hard work. And <laughs> I just think that's really funny. And that's yeah, the kind yeah. of humor that she does really well at. So, Yeah, it's like humor plus characterization in just a couple short sentences. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about writing-wise in this chapter is now we have a new narrator, sort of. Um, we still have a third-person limited perspective, but now instead of Vernon, as it was last chapter, now we have Harry as our narrator who is very different. I mean, being inside Harry's head is very different than being in Vernon's. Last chapter, we got things like, uh, you know, Vernon yelling at people and having a great day. Now we have Harry going to the zoo and being left alone for a couple minutes, walking around looking at animals and eating a very cheap lemon ice pop. And he says the best day he's had in a while. So um, it's sort of sad, um, but it's it's nice to see um, the narrator that we're going to spend the rest of the book series with. Um, and, and there's a lot of characterization that comes from that. So I think um, Rowling's doing a good job of showing us his character through the narration. Uh, and one last thing that I wanted to talk about in this chapter, it's, as far as writing goes, is um, that we're presented with our first uh, pair of foils in this chapter, um, which foils uh, are basically characters who are opposites in some way. So a good example of that would be Harry and Dudley in this chapter. And I would I would describe Dudley as being sort of a spoiled brat, um, cruel, manipulative, dishonest, uh, lazy, bullying, um, unintelligent, maybe. 
And how would you describe Harry? Yeah, and I think Harry is the opposite of a lot of those things. So instead of being spoiled, he's neglected, he's bullied, he's small, skinny. Um, he's pretty thoughtful and inquisitive and humble, um, honest, things that Dudley is not mm-hmm. as much. Yeah. And so, yeah, in that way, they would be foils of each other, I would think. Yeah. And that what that serves to do, basically, is um, highlight... By, by showing their opposites, highlight how different they behave and how different they are um, and why we should be rooting for Harry as our main character as opposed to Dudley. This next section will be us reading our favorite quotes from the chapter. David, do you want to start? Sure, I'll go first. Um, this is on page 29 and it starts with, But worst of all, for Harry at least, was Piers calming down enough to say, Harry was talking to it, weren't you, Harry? Uncle Vernon waited until Piers was safely out of the room before starting on Harry. He was so angry he could hardly speak. He managed to say, Go, cupboard, stay, no meals, before he collapsed into a chair and Aunt Petunia had to run and get him a large brandy. <laughs> and so I picked that quote because I, I really love the prose and um, the way that J.K. Rowling describes Vernon sort of almost unable to speak completely. <laughs> it's very funny um, and I just really like the writing of that. I like it too, and I think it goes back to the fear we were talking about earlier, because this reaction is, you know, frustration and shock, but I do think it's mostly from that fear of, oh, Harry was talking to something and then something bad happened, so it is, again, that fear of Harry, fear of magic, and that kind of thing coming back. Absolutely. And J.K. Rowling uses the Vernon is really angry uh, thing a lot for humor. Um, This is just like one of our first times getting to see it, so... And what was your favorite quote? So my favorite quote was just after that, towards the end of the chapter. Um, I'm going to read this, and a bit of the quote has been cut out in the middle, but this gives you a sense of um, Harry's talking about the strangers that he meets. When he had been younger, Harry had dreamed and dreamed of some unknown relation coming to take him away, but it had never happened. The Dursleys were his only family. Yet sometimes he thought, or maybe hoped, that strangers in the streets seemed to know him. Very strange strangers they were, too. The weirdest thing about these people was how they seemed to vanish the second Harry tried to get a closer look. So I like this quote, and I like the rest of it, too. Basically, the rest of it is just talking about more specific examples of strangers that came up to him. And we know that these are wizards who know him because he's Harry Potter and he's famous and he has been his whole life. Um, I like this because, again, thinking about Harry's sort of isolation, this is another indication that he has some sort of support in this fame, although it's not really the support that he needs right now. Right. We also see the word vanish um, in this, which is pretty interesting. Um, And that's towards the end of this chapter, but it wasn't something I noticed before. Um, And that's, of course, talking about apparition but it's Mm -hmm. pretty interesting that that is also included as a theme so it's cool that you drew a parallel to that early on in this podcast even yeah i didn't uh, even realize (laughs) yeah (laughs) well vanishing that word again uh is coming up and yeah i think this is a great passage um it it shows how uh he has a lot he has this fame still continuing on um and that's going to continue to come up as a thing that that harry is uncomfortable with maybe um but that you know, sort of defines him. And and it's about how he's sort of like, he's sort of like Cinderella in this chapter. He's, you know, neglected and beaten down by his family 
and he feels like there's something else out there that maybe he's destined for, but it's just out of reach. And it's a really nice way to end the chapter. Yeah, I agree. So this segment will talk about one new thing that we noticed or something that stuck out to us a lot in this read-through of the chapter. So the thing that really stuck out for me was the fact that Harry is so young. He's only 11, and I didn't realize what it means to be 11 and experiencing this. And he's just so abused and also has so much power um, that is being reacted to by um, Vernon's fear mostly in this Mm -hmm. chapter. So just that whole power dynamic and just the extremity of the situation kind of hit me reading it this time. Yeah, as like someone who's now um, getting to see all all kinds of psychological cases these days, does it stick out to you more of like um, the degree of abuse that he's receiving and like how how he would be, you know, if he were a real person, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not something that I want to speculate so much on because there are so many different ways that people react to abuse and trauma and some people are not very affected and some people are very resilient. Um, Some people are more affected than Harry makes it seem. So I guess Mm -hmm. I don't want to comment um, based on other cases, but I do think that, yeah, probably learning about all of this and seeing more cases have made me notice this more and think of it more in a real situation instead of just a story. Yeah. Well, cool. And what were you thinking about most this chapter? All right. Well, bear with me because uh, this is kind of a big question. But I thought about... So going back to when Harry vanishes the glass, I was thinking about how that would happen. And I was thinking about how we normally see magic working in, in this series. Um, and usually, you know, it's there's an incantation. You have to say the right words. And you have to pronounce them right. You can't say leviosa. You have to say leviosa. <laughs> Uh, and you have to do a wand movement, like the swish and flick, and you have to be using a wand, and you have to be concentrating, and all this stuff needs to happen to channel a magical spell. And yet Harry accomplishes vanishing, which is a very high-level, you know, advanced wizard spell, by accident, with no wand, with no incantation. So how did he do this? And what I'm wondering more of along those lines is then... What are the actual physiological mechanics of using magic? So does it come from your brain and then it's channeled through the language and the wand and the movement? Or is it, or is it something else? So I, I was thinking a lot about that because I don't really understand how Harry was able to do this. Yeah, and I don't know that well I'll be able to answer that, but I do think that that's really interesting and... I think the answer is probably it's all of those things, and it kind of depends. Um, Just the most basic thing that you mentioned before was, you know, do you need a wand, or what happens when it's these accidents? And to me, it seems like it's um, maybe the way some talents are that people have. So you really have to train for a long time and do it the right way, but sometimes you can sort of accidentally do something or right. be good at it for sort of a minute or a bit mm-hmm. while. But I don't think that's a perfect analogy, but I do think it's it just yeah. sometimes can happen. And maybe especially in children who have this sort of untapped power and creativity in this world. Do you think that the... So, so we know that language 
And like the pseudo Latin that they cast spells in normally is really important because if you get the incantation wrong, it screws up the spell and all that stuff. Um, and even when they do nonverbal spells later on in sixth year and seventh year, um, they like say the incantation in their head. They just don't say it out loud. Right. So like Harry didn't say any incantation. So does that mean that magic can be channeled without the incantation? It just like requires a lot more emotion or strife or something that we just haven't really pinned down yeah i don't know but i i also kind of think it goes back to that idea of the sort of obscurial or accidental magic or repressed magic or whatever we're talking about it um i think clearly magic can and does happen without the doer even knowing it sometimes and we don't we're not really sure how it works (laughs) the doer of magic yeah Oh, well, that's interesting. I guess we'll have to keep thinking about that as we go through this. And um, I wonder if there are people who, like, study at the Ministry of Magic who, like, study how magic works like that, like magicologists. I wonder if that's a, a field. Probably. If I was a wizard, I'd probably be in that field. Well, that will wrap up our discussion of this chapter, The Vanishing Glass. Um, before we go, I just want to remind you all um, that we will be taking questions and comments on our email, harrypodcast7 at gmail.com, and please let us know if you have any of those. Um, but in the meantime, thank you all so much for listening to Harry Podcast and The Vanishing Glass. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.